Good morning. Today's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Hello again. One verse today. I could turn Peter into a, a thing, like a long thing. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to put the graphic up because that will distract me. So, um, we have been sort of putting the book of Peter in context. If you've missed the first few uh, teachings here, um, Nero is a really bad emperor. He wanted to build some stuff, and so he burnt down a lot of Rome. And people were really upset with him, so he blamed it on the Christians. Uh, the Christians ran to the outskirts of Rome. Um, Peter is one of these Christians. He's an apostle. He knew Jesus, and now he is traveling around planting churches. The Christians are now being hunted down and systematically wiped out and killed in the first century. Uh, and so Peter writes them a letter, and this is that letter. Um, it is addressed to the Christians in the dispersion, those who are running away. And he lists a whole bunch of uh, cities. And if you follow these cities on a map, it's like the outskirts of all the way around the Roman Empire. So there's a little context for you. Um, so when he talks about persecution, he's not talking about people calling them bad names. He's talking about actual persecution. He's talking about terrifying things. Um, it's a very hopeful book, which is uh, in the context, given it's, it's surprising that it's so hopeful, but that's what Christianity is, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And so with that, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump into this passage. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we ask that you would uh, calm our hearts and our spirits, allow us to be still in your presence, allow us to hear from you. Um, those with minds that are running a million miles an hour, and, and all these things are, are flooding into their minds, I ask that you would calm that so that they can hear from you this morning. I ask that we would be able to focus. I ask that uh, you would give us knowledge and the wisdom to apply that knowledge. May I be able to communicate clearly. Thank you for preserving this ancient letter for 2,000 years so that we could sit here and read what the ancient followers of you were going through and that we can somehow apply it in this sort of postmodern 21st century world which we live in and uh, help it to make sense, help us to grasp the mindset with which these books were written. Um, thank you for, uh, for building this church. Thank you for the people you have brought here. I ask right now that you would help us to center our thoughts on you. Help us to listen to you. Thank you. Your name, amen. Um, okay, so... I'm going to break this, um, this, this verse down into like four parts. Um, verses like this, I don't like to just rush through them and, and put them in a big pile with a bunch of other verses and just cover like nine verses at once. Um, because there's too much here. There's too much ancient context. Um, and I'm going to start with this first word, therefore. Um, yes, one word at a time even. Um, this is a great word. When I was in Bible college, and some of you are in Bible college, you may have heard this. I had a professor. He used to tell me, whenever you come to the word therefore, you find out what it's there for, right? I heard this. Um, because it's, it's the Greek word dios, dio, and, and it basically, um, it connects two things. It's, it's cause and effect. And this is the and. Um, something has happened, and so something is coming. Um, 
we found something out, we have some information, and so over here we need to respond to that. Whenever you receive new information, information can, it doesn't always, but it can change the way you interact with things. And if that information is powerful enough, it really does change your actions. And so what he's telling us is, um, therefore means we need to look back at what he just said. He's just been telling us that Jesus has risen from the dead. This has happened. Um, and this has never happened before. Um, and he says that that is the hope that we have. Um, he also says that, in the, if you were here last week, he talked about how we now know things that Peter himself didn't know when he was walking with Jesus, that didn't make sense to him. The prophets didn't know when they were receiving messages from God. It said, he said in the previous passage, um, the prophets had a lot of questions about the things that they were even saying. Um, he even says that we now know things that even the angels didn't know. And so the first century Christians were pushed into this terrible persecution, but they were first armed with really valuable information, things that all of creation has always wondered and only God knew, and now he has delivered to us. And so he says, in light of now what you know, there is, therefore, a response. It's cause and effect. Um, the cause is the information. The effect is, and, and the rest of the verse is centered around what we should be doing in response to what we now know. Your response should be one of action and hope. And the idea here is of bravery. Um, and basically, you need to prepare for what is to come. You need to hop in, uh, hop in and, and prepare yourself for the hope that is um, available to us now. Um, so I'm going to ask a random question. I want you to think about it. When was the last time, because this rarely happens in our, this day and age, when was the last time you really felt um, brave? I know it's kind of a cheesy question because we make like kids' movies called Brave, and we, our kids see they think they see monsters in the closet, and we tell them, oh, Johnny, be brave, okay, just be brave. Um, and it's easy to tell our kids to be brave um, because the threat isn't actually real. We know there's no monsters in the closet. We're pretty sure, at least, at this age. Um, and we're, we're pretty sure that there's nothing bad in their room that is going to get them in their sleep. And so it's easy for us to say, just be brave, because we have information that they don't have. Now, when was the last time, though, that you... Th- were addressed by a threat of whatever magnitude. It could be just social, relational, spiritual, um, physical. It could be any kind of threat. And, and, and you, in your mind, just didn't budge. You looked at it and said, well, I can easily take care of this. I can easily conquer this. I have the ability to do that. That you knew it was within your power to do something. Um, when was the last time you really... F- there was something really scary that needed to be done and you knew deep down that if you confronted it, things would be made better. Now, there is a relationship dynamic um, that if, if you take my... Uh, if you're getting married and, and you come to me for premarriage counseling, this is one of the things I talk about, so there's, I guess there's a bonus. Um, I have messy writing. Um, assertiveness and self-confidence kind of go together and, and this is especially true in marriage. Um, people who um, are assertive... People who, this is, I guess, I like to say that this word is a lot, little like brave. People who are assertive, they step in and they address things that are problems, especially in marriage. They step in and they say, um, honey, we got to talk. This is a problem. This needs to be fixed now. People who are assertive and it actually works, they actually fix something, um, they become more self-confident. People who are self-confident, um, are people who know 
that they can confront something and it will be fixed. So they are assertive. These things work together. And the more you assert yourself, the more you step up and you see something bad was there and I addressed it and now it's, it's working. That makes you confident in your ability to solve things. And so I use this idea to point to the fact that Jesus attacked something. He conquered something. And this thing is so big and so powerful, sin and death. Um, He's offering us resurrection. He's pretty much canceling out all of the terrifying things that we have in our mind, the things we fear the most. Um, Thoughts of hopelessness, thoughts of death, um, just all these fears that are attached to this that that go very deep in our hearts. Um, Something has happened and God has, has asserted himself and taken care of this. And so this should give us, relationally, because I always talk about how marriages mirror our relationship with God, and they are supposed to. Um, this is the difference between holy matrimony and marriage. Um, a Christian marriage is something that um, is meant to model God and us. Um, grace is given, and there's forgiveness and it's the gospel being played out. And I always tell people when they are getting married, you are painting a picture of the gospel through your marriage. People are watching you. And if you were saying this is a Christian marriage, holy matrimony, then I hope that you really do live this well. And so if our groom has conquered something, we are his bride, we know that this can be done and they should give us hope and, and a response. And so that's the therefore. It's, this, is, this has happened, therefore this should be happening. And so now we're going to open up the things he said that should be happening. Um, he starts off by saying, preparing your minds for action. Um, okay, so sometimes you read something uh, 2,000 years after it's written, and there's some words that are used, and they don't make a lot of sense to you, and so you change them to, so that it makes sense. This happened here with the translation. Some of your translations, if anyone in here, um, and I... I kind of doubt it for some reason. If any of you here are actually reading the King James Version, um, then it actually says something totally different than this. And it's, it's actually what should be there, which is funny. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes, you know... <laughs> I'm not going to joke. Um, yeah, so the filter's working today. Um, so, it's sort of like if I wrote a letter to somebody today and I said... Um, hey, there's, we have a lot of work to do. Roll up your sleeves. And I'm talking about like building a house. And then 2,000 years later, someone finds this ancient piece of iPad. And they're just, wow, it's ancient iPad. And they're reading it. And they say, so there's a lot of work to be done. Roll up your sleeves. What does the length of your shirt have to do with building a house? It doesn't make sense to me. We know what we're saying. We are not actually talking about literally rolling up your sleeves. Um, we're talking about how there's a lot to do. Rolling up your sleeve is basically something that you do so that you have freedom of movement. You have, um, there's nothing holding you back. You can work and you can swing a hammer and all this. Um, and so what's actually being said here is the, the, the actual translation would be gird up your loins. I know, funny. Um, we don't, we read that and we're like, gird up, what? What would I, what does that mean, first off? I know what a girdle is, and I know what loins are, and I don't see how this applies to anything that we're talking about. So um, there's a blog that I read called The Art of Manliness. I don't know if you've seen this. It's, it's great. Um, brilliant guy. Um, and so they actually, luckily, about five or six months ago, made uh, an infographic to help you understand 
where girding up your loins is. And so let's work our way through this. Number one, the tunic back then in the first century wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor or fighting in battle, uh, and it necessitated the girding of one's loins. Now, next up, um, and so I'm trying, I'm trying to read this, I'm getting in the way. Uh, first, hoist the tunic up so that all the fabric is above your knees, and this will give you mobility. Next up, I want you to understand, this is really important. Um, gather all the material, extra material in front of you so that the back of the tunic is snug against your backside. All right? Uh, <laughs> once the excess fabric is gathered in front, pull it underneath between your legs to the rear. This feels much like a diaper. <laughs> Gather half of the material in each hand, bringing it to the back, around to the front. And finally, yes, tie your handfuls together, and you're all set for both battle and some hard labor. Go forth, be ye men, and gird up your loins. All right. So, now, hilarity ensues. It's funny. Whoa. All right. That was crazy. Um, so, all right, so now you're clear on exactly what girding up your loins is. So what is it that he is saying here? Therefore, because you have a lot of information that the angels, the prophets, me, none of us had except for God, and now you have it, uh, and this has to do with resurrection, that things will be made right, things will be better. Um, therefore, pull up your dress. We got work to do, all right? Um, what he's actually saying here is, this sermon is actually titled, uh, Your Dress is Stuck. Um, so there, that's, write that down. That'll be on the podcast. Um, oh, man. Where am I at? Okay, so, sorry. I just, my mind starts wandering today. I had a lot of coffee. It's great. So it's the same idea um, if, if, guys, if you come to the realization that you're about to, about to get into a physical altercation... And there's no stopping it. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You're about to get in a fight. You take off your jacket, right? I mean, the last thing you want is for somebody to grab it, pull it over your head, and just go nuts. Um, lights out. Um, same idea. There is. So what Peter's basically saying is, um, we have somewhere to go. This is heading somewhere. Um, but there are things that are slowing you down. In other words, your tunic is getting caught on things. Um, and to them, it makes perfect sense. So he's saying there are things in your life, if you are moving towards something, preparing your minds for action. There are actions that need to be done, things you need to do. And in order to get these things done, you need to make sure there is nothing holding you back, that you do not get caught on anything. He's basically saying there are things in your life that you need to inspect, that you need to find that are keeping you from really taking part in this thing, from really growing towards Jesus and really following him and really having a full understanding uh, of the potential that, that, that you have through the power of God to live a life that is meaningful, fulfilling, um, impactful, establishes the kingdom and just all of those things that bring us intense joy and peace in our lives. There are things in your life that are keeping you, that you are stuck on, that you cannot actually get where you need to go until you do something about it, until you take care of them. There are things you need to leave behind. Um, and so, if resurrection is true, and if sanctification is true, the way this works is, as we are heading towards Jesus and resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits. we are promised that we will experience what he did our resurrection will come. And as we move towards Jesus, 
Something happens called sanctification where our life starts um, becoming more aligned with his teachings. And so as we're moving towards resurrection, small pieces of our life are being resurrected as well. Um, And these, I like to think of these things as sort of gears. Um, And these little tiny little pieces of our life, as they become movable, as they become um, impactful on the rest of your life, these little tiny pieces as you're moving towards Jesus uh, are healed. And as more and more of your life is healed, it creates movement in sort of the rest of your life. It creates this thing where... um, when one thing starts moving, it moves the next one, and that moves the next one, and that moves the next one. A, a lot of people um, look at their life and they say, well, my life is a complete wreck. And they look at it as if trying to, you ever heard the phrase, trying to eat an elephant? How do you do that? One bite at a time. And, and you kind of look at it and you kind of say, well, that's, my life is such a wreck, I have no idea where to start. Um, as you move towards Jesus, these little tiny little pieces that, that were catching, that were, you were stuck on, that were keeping you from following God. These little things in your life were holding you back. And as you fix them, more things start moving and start breaking free. Um, Applying movement to one area can affect the entire structure of your life. Applying movement to one little thing really does affect. So maybe maybe the middle one here might be your prayer life and, and you just never engaged that and you never activated that. You just never got in the habit of doing that. Um, but when you do, you might find that as you are praying for other people, your compassion for them grows, um, causing this one over here to move more steadily, causing you to understand um, people's plights and people's sin. It, it's not so much different than yours, and they need grace in the same way that you received it. And this can actually affect um, your marriage, the big one, which would spin um, and and it would cause you to have a really good relationship with your spouse, and, and this would be the place where maybe you would, you would draw your, the way it's meant to be, you would draw your encouragement and your, um, your love from your, your daily sort of support and, and your practicing of service to your spouse, and that would cause these other parts to move where you would become a more giving and thoughtful person, and you'd, become, you'd come to understand more the grace of God, and your theology would be moved, and all these little parts, they, they move together, they work together. And so these little parts of your life that you have neglected, you might find if you get those moving, it really does change how you function in your spirituality. These little things, if we are moving towards something, and he says, you know, gird up your loins, because these little things that catch you, they're, they're slowing everything else down. Nothing is an island. Um, imagine if, if this one over here sort of cracks and breaks. It has the potential to lock up all the other ones. Um, a lot of us have things in our hearts, in our lives that we see and that we know we shouldn't be engaging in um, and they don't fit in with our Christian walk and they don't fit in with, with how Jesus wants us to live in this world. Uh, maybe you have some latent sort of racism or prejudice or uh, maybe like a porn addiction or you have some sort of way, um, some sort of way that you are looking at other people, some sort of envy, um, judgment, pride. Um, all of these little things, you might think that you have a secret sin and nobody knows about it and it's not going to affect anything um, and you've done really good for a really long time of keeping it secret um, and you sort of come to the conclusion that, well, I've done it so it's never affected anything. I would argue against that. I would say it probably has affected things so much and, and it's been so long that you just don't even notice it anymore. Um, for instance, it, let's say that you developed a, um, uh, that a man developed maybe, maybe a porn addiction 
And this would absolutely affect his, his relationship with his wife. It would affect her own self-confidence. It would, affect, it would in, in effect, put up sort of a wall between them. And, and you both know it's sort of there. And then it moves around into um, you're no longer being fed and nurtured the way that, that your marriage was meant to. And, and now these other parts are sort of breaking down and it, it's sort of destroying everything. And it could be anything. You could throw any sin out there. I know people who have had their careers destroyed because they had a gossip problem. I know people who um, were morbidly obese because they had no um, hope in themselves that they could change anything because they never really learned to assert themselves or engage anything. And they had such a low view of themselves. And so these things matter. How you look at yourself and, and how you think God looks at you can affect every other aspect of your life. Um, I, have, I have met people who have become atheists after regular practices of promiscuity and... Um, drug abuse um, and it comes to a point where you kind of have to make a choice this or that and uh, that one and so these little parts of your life that you don't think are affecting anything they actually really really are because we are relational creatures and we are built to have this this give and take in, in, our, in our relationship um, you cannot compartmentalize your problems you just simply can't you can't take a part of your life and say well that will remain untouched by the gospel because I really enjoy it. Um, <clears throat> it's not, no part of your life is an island. You are a whole being. And to leave an area of your life untouched by the gospel, it threatens every other part of your life. Um, so basically, to gird up your loins is to tighten up the screws, is to look at everything and say, what is it that might be affecting other things? And, and really diving in and taking care of those. Um, a desire to follow God is, and, and, to run after this thing is not enough. You, you also need to put in some work. Um, if you really want to take part in what God is doing in this, in this world, um, which is very fulfilling, by the way. So I'm going to move into, so we've, we've covered the therefore, um, the response. Here's what you need to do. Gird up your loins, you know, roll up your sleeves, whatever. Um, and so you get into the next part. It says, and being sober-minded. Now, um, we tend to, uh, I mean, evangelical Christians tend to make most things about, about alcohol. Um, and so we tend to look at this and be like, well, that means don't get drunk. Yes, and much more than that. Um, the idea of sober-minded is, um, it, the ancient idea would be an outside force um, impacting the way you think. And so the reason we use the word sober to describe intoxication is because it was an outside force that changes and affects the way we think. Um, the actual word would be steady. Steady-minded. Um, and there's a lot that goes into this. Um, yes, drunkenness is there. The, the, the Christian ideal that, that we are taught in scriptures is moderation. Not, not being intoxicated by anything, um, but in all things, practicing holiness as a, and, and moderation as a form of worship to God. Um, and so, but it's so much more than this as well. Um, a person who is steady-minded is a person that is calm, they're aware, they're present, they're not influenced by outside forces, they're steady, they're here, um, they're not distracted, they are focused, they're present. 
They're always listening for what God is doing and striving to take part in it. It's a very meaningful way of living. Um, There are intoxicating thoughts, new ideas, new causes, new movements, and they pop up, they gain lots of steam, and then they die out. You live in an incredibly unique generation. Um, My generation would be the last generation that knows knows what it's like to live without computers and constant communication with other people. I didn't have a computer until I was a freshman in college. So my, there's an entire half of my life that I know what it's like to be in solitude and actual physical relationship with people. Um, today, you are pushed on you, on your mind, every second of every day, you are allowing these outside forces to push on you to decide what you think about at this moment, to decide how you think about certain issues, to decide this, that, uh, everything. You live in a generation that is not like any other. Causes and movements are born every single week. Three months from now, you will struggle to remember even what you are marching for today because in the next six months, there will be 12 more things that you will be irate and upset about and you don't realize that there are forces on the outside pushing all this anger upon you. The Christian, the follower of Jesus, the one who is moving towards Jesus, is the one who is steady-minded, the one who is focused on the big picture, the one who understands what happened 2,000 years ago and how it affects every part of our life. And you line up your life to take part every moment in what you were doing. You are, I I would um, call it a non-reactive presence. Somebody who isn't just reacting to every little piece of information they hear. They take it, they're prayerful about it, and they think about it. Um, and they are, I mean, if you read church history, I am so thankful that, that social media didn't exist for the vast majority of church history because there were already so many movements that popped up, even in my lifetime. Since college, so many movements have popped up in Christianity alone. Um, and if, I mean, if you just, you couldn't fit them all on this huge screen. You couldn't. Um, you have the monastic movement, the reform movement, the new reform movement, the new monastic movement. You have the emergent movement, emerging movement. Um, even evangelicalism is a movement started in the early 40s. Um, you have um, postmodernism. Um, just so many movements. Fundamentalism, mainline, just all these different movements. And, and these are sort of... I I enjoy the conversation. I appreciate it. And I appreciate that we care enough to do these things. But on a deeper level, have a steady mind. Do not be intoxicated with every little thing that rises up because most of them are a flash in the pan. And when they are gone, you may be embarrassed that you were ever a part of it. And so the Christian is not to be as as Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians, swayed by every wind of doctrine, but steady-minded. Um, if you get to know people in this room, you will find that our, in our church there are people who are left and right on e- almost every issue, but we come together and worship Jesus because we agree that Jesus was right. His teachings were right. The salvation that he offers is real and it is true. His, his death paid the price for our sins. His resurrection gives us hope for the future. And we take communion every time we get together. And other than that, we talk about things. But there's something else that Peter says that helps along with this sober-mindedness. And it looks like this. Uh, oh, wait, back it up. What did I do? Oh, no, this is, this is good. Let's read this, James. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot I put this in there. I I thought about it, and I was like, let's put that in there. All right. Uh, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Are you paying attention? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There is something much deeper at play. Most of the things that we want to change can be changed by love and grace. And so Peter actually says something to cap all this off and say, well, this is here, here's exactly how uh, this works. Uh, hey, hit it twice and it backed up. Here, back that up one slide for me there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does anybody know back that up one slide. Hit left. There you go. So I'm going I'm to work my way through this again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, and, and here's how this works, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, something you may miss if you don't pay attention, set your hope fully on the grace. Fully. Not mostly on grace. Fully on grace. Most of us, we show grace to people that agree with us. Oftentimes, these people do things that are people that agree with us, uh, socially, politically, theologically, whatever. They do things that, well, I disagree. Why would they do that? You know, maybe they'll, they'll commit some terrible sin or whatever, or they'll just say something that you think is stupid. But you'll say, I disagree with that, but they were right on all these other things. But someone on the other side, a little slip up, same thing. What do we do? Crucify him. That's what we do. We no longer practice grace. We practice revenge and retribution, don't we? Because grace for this person, no grace for this person. If you are really a follower of Jesus and you really understand what the gospel means for you, you would feel really silly if you stepped back and looked at your life and said, well, God offers like all of us grace, not the ones who he agrees with. He's offering grace. It's out there. It's available to all of us. How can you not offer grace to everyone? How can you not be slow to speak slow to anger and quick to listen? How can you not sit down with people and speak to them and love them? Most of the time, the things that we do, the way that we respond, are not Jesus-like. Yet somehow, we think they are. We think that Jesus is on our side. No matter where we are. No matter what we're thinking. Um, And I think oftentimes we need to settle down, be sober-minded, exercise grace, exercise some love, understanding. And the same grace we give to the people that we like, we give that same grace to the people that we don't agree with. Um, And it's a very difficult thing to do. It's kind of, the gospel a lot of times is, is offensive to the way that we think. It's very difficult. It's much easier to stand up and say, well, I'm right and they're wrong. Here's who's right, here's who's wrong. We hate those guys. That's pretty easy to do. That's very human. That is not Jesus. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation. Grace is the thing that has brought all of us together. Grace is the thing that all of us affirm um, we all need. You need grace just as much as anyone else. And if it has been offered to, offered to you, you need to be a conduit for that grace. Pour it through to someone else. Um, 
it's in the light of, of this hope that we have that Peter says, gird up your loins. He says, there are things that are holding you back. A couple of them will be um, intoxication of your mind, things flooding your mind, taking control of your thoughts. And let me just throw this out there. Most of us, and myself too, I, you ever been sitting there like you're, you're at a wonderful moment where you should be paying attention, dinner table, whatever, with people that you love, and, and you find yourself just flipping through your phone? It's not just that. It's so many other things that we are intoxicating ourselves with. Moderation is important across the board in so many things that we, we just have such a hard time practicing single-mindedness, steady-mindedness. Oh, and the great part is there's a spiritual discipline that can help you with that. Silence and solitude and prayer. Focusing on God, bringing your mind back to Him. Uh, setting aside a moment of the day to stop 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour if you're really good at it. Um, and listening to God and listening to what has to do, and just focusing on a passage of Scripture um, and, and let this be the guide that sets the tone for your day. Um, maybe you're, okay, so we've now talked about the idea that there are things in your life holding you back. So I guess one of the questions people have is, so how do I identify these things? How do I um, know what things are holding me back and what things are not? Because some of them are kind of questionable. I'm just not sure. Um, maybe you're asking just how do I know? Um, I want to confess these things. I want to cleanse them from my life. I want to move fast towards the, the grace of God and towards the kingdom of God and establishing it, but I, I don't know how to recognize them. Um, one simple way is, is, is studying scripture specifically. Um, if this is what you're trying to find out, these parts that are holding you back, study the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The stories of Jesus, how he walked, how he interacted with people. Observe how he responded to criticism. Observe um, how he responded to stress when people were just overtaking him. Um, observe how he prayed. Um, how he ordered his day and took regular time. Observe how he, how he fasted and prayed. Observe how he spent a lot of time with lowly people and spent some time with, with, with rich people um, and learned to love everyone. And, uh, observe the people that he brought to his table. And you'll be very surprised by what you find. Um, another way is there's, a, there's actually a, there's a guy named Henry Cloud. He's written some great books over the year. He wrote a book, actually just came out like a few months ago. It's called... Um, never Go Back, I think it was called. Yes, Never Go Back. Um, and he has this, this way that he recommends, and, and I saw it, and I've heard it before, but he put it out. He just he described it great. Um, he calls it playing the movie. Um, look at every part of your life, the moment you're in right now, as one scene in a huge movie that is playing out. Now, what you are doing right now, if you play that forward, does it end well? good or bad. If you were to keep doing this thing, every scene of that movie, how would that end? Um, he, he tends to apply it more to physical things. Um, I've heard lots of, of, of very godly theologians talk about applying this to um, spiritual things as well. Um, and so here's something he writes. Um, Playing the movie reveals that the bag of chips or the cookies might taste good now, but if I look down the road a bit, I will not like what follows. If I play the scene after this one and after that one, I might see myself 50 pounds heavier or having no savings in 10 years or giving in to someone in five years the same way I'm giving in to them today or, or, or. 
And so take this physical idea and apply it to your spiritual life, to your faith. Um, are you happy with your daily spiritual rituals, your regimen, the, the way that you're feeding yourself? Are you happy with your relationship with people? Or do you have a good record of, of forgiving people? Um, if you keep on the track that you are, do you see yourself alone in 30 years? Just alone and miserable, nobody wants to be around you because you have a way of being bitter and unloving and unforgiving and unmerciful and ungraceful. If you keep jumping on every bandwagon of everything that rises up and demands your, 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 your attention and intoxicates your mind, um, will you have any idea who you are in five years? Will you have any idea what you actually believe about God if you jump on every single spiritual bandwagon? In five years, will you be the same person that you are now? Play the movie forward. What do you see? Where does it end? And you might find some things that you say, well, this actually is holding me back. I need to confess this. I need to talk to my brothers and sisters in my church and, and get their support and help me, disciple me, and walk me out of this. This is why we have house churches. That's what this is all about. Um, and so one of the things that as I, I'm going to sort of end with this idea today and, and one more verse. The way that you can describe this is if you become aware of something that like this is going to end bad. If I just keep doing this, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get far worse. Um, the second you realize that, you are what we would call and what the prophets would call awake. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Um, awake, O sleeper. Once you are awake, you have to respond. So this is the context in which I like to talk about this verse. Therefore, you are now awake. Of, uh, there is some information that you have been given. How you respond is you find the things that are keeping you from attaining that, and you get rid of them. Once you are awake, you have to respond. And the best way to respond is be clear-headed and focused on one thing, in this case, Jesus and the resurrection and the kingdom that is at hand and the salvation of yourself and the world. And move towards that, exercising grace with every single person that you come into contact with. Not partial grace, full grace, all people. This is, this is a big verse. Very important that we don't skim over things like this. And so, maybe you are now awake. Maybe you have, you have something in your mind that you've been thinking of, and now you're trying to think of something else. I want to focus on that thing, and I, I want you to confess that thing to God today. And I want you to talk to someone in this, in this church, find another Christian. We are all um, the priests now of God. This has been passed on to us, and one of our jobs is to connect people to Jesus, the high priest. And so you can hear confessions and you can look at people and you can say, hey, your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus because of what he has done. And we can work together to fix these things, right? So um, we're going to take communion. Um, this is something we do every week. It's very, very important. It's, uh, it's a reminder of exactly what this is all about. It's about Jesus and his death, his burial, and his resurrection and the hope that that brings us. Um, as we go into communion today, maybe there's something that you need to confess, maybe something you need to repent of, find a brother and sister, or right through these double doors, there's a room on the left there, it's our prayer room, there will be people in there to pray with you, 
They would, they would love to talk to you. Um, or you can stick around afterwards, talk to me. Um, if you're not a follower of Christ, um, you should become one. You really should. Very freeing. It's very, uh, it's, it's the, the salvation that Jesus offers is, is, is far above anything else you'll ever experience. And so if that is you, I would invite you to take communion with us today. Um, everyone else, follower of Jesus, all, let's all take communion together. Um, you don't have to be a member of our church. Um, take a piece of bread, rip it off, dip it in the wine, eat it. And say, God, take this gospel down inside of me. Thank you for what you did for me. Let it touch places that I have left untouched. They need to be touched. They're holding you back. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Work in our hearts, work in our minds. Cleanse us, make us whole. Help us to give up these parts that we see, even if they're small. Show us small victories to give us hope in the bigger things. Show us that uh, if we can confront and take care and be assertive and take care of some of these small things, that we can gain the confidence that you are here and giving us the power to take care of the larger things. Let these smaller things set something in motion that is unstoppable. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. We love you. In your name. Amen.